From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, the 13th of July. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Rising anger in Spain over the government's deep budget cuts, how mobile apps could help some struggling Europeans to make ends meet, and later, the impact of deforestation in Madagascar, one iconic species, is critically endangered. Critically endangered means they're on the verge of extinction, and, and uh, one of the most indicative species of this is this little animal called the northern sportive lemur, which is down to 17 individuals in the wild. And in our global hit, we revisit the glory days of Afghan pop. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss the series premiere of Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Today, protesters blocked the streets of Spain's capital, Madrid. Many of the demonstrators were civil servants. They're angry at a new round of budget cuts and tax hikes the government unveiled this week. Spain is desperate to reduce public spending as it tries to meet European Union demands after it agreed to a massive bank bailout. The world's Jerry Haddon sent us this report from Barcelona. When Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy went before Parliament to lay out his latest austerity measures, things got ugly quickly. Opponents jeered and interrupted him, but Rajoy delivered the painful news regardless. His list of cuts and taxes was long. There'd be less money for the unemployed, retirees, public sector workers, and beginning next month, a big hike in the national sales tax. Then trouble came from Rajoy's own corner. As Rajoy was explaining how the unemployed would have benefits reduced after just six months, one of his supporters shouted out a rather more vulgar version of screw them. It'd be illegal to air the exact phrase used by Parliament member Andrea Fabra, but the exact phrase became the slogan for tonight's nationwide protests. Fabra, the daughter of an old-school Spanish politician most known for building an empty airport with Europe's longest runway, said she wasn't disparaging the jobless, but that's hardly lowered the tension. As if things weren't tense enough, it's been a restive week here. As Rajoy was delivering the bad news inside Parliament, outside on the streets, striking coal miners and supporters clashed with police in the worst violence seen in Spain in over a year. The miners are upset at cuts in coal subsidies. The tens of thousands who marched with them, they're upset at just about everything. A 25% unemployment, a $130 billion bank rescue that's led to this latest dose of austerity. Spain did appear to get some good news this month. The European Union agreed to give the country an extra year to reduce its public deficit to 3%. But even that's causing controversy, and again within Rajoy's own conservative camp. That extra year translates to savings, but Spain's central government isn't passing that savings on to the country's heavily indebted regional governments. Regional leaders, even some conservative allies, say that's not fair. 
In response, Spain's economy minister, Luis de Guindos, basically told them, too bad. The regions are going to meet the deficit targets we've put in place for them, he said. They're going to meet them, regardless of their political stripes. If not, he said, the central government would take over their finances, much the way Europe has taken over Spain's, even if Rajoy and his ministers wouldn't quite put it that way. If Spain can't get everyone on the same austerity page, it stands to derail the massive bank bailout set for this summer. Without that bailout, most analysts agree that Spain would eventually need a full-blown rescue, like those in Greece, Portugal, and Ireland. But many economists also believe that the latest government cuts will only deepen Spain's recession, which could also force Spain to seek a rescue. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Across Europe, the economic crisis has many people scrambling to make ends meet. Their stories of ruin or near ruin caught the attention of a British technologist, Ken Banks. I was just seeing people having their lives trashed, you know, reading about people's lives being destroyed and people losing their homes. Why should something that happened 10,000 miles away on a stock exchange lead to someone losing their job and their home? So Ken Banks decided to do something about it. He's developing web-based and mobile apps that will help people engage in bartering, time-swapping, even alternative currencies. The world's Clark Boyd writes about Banks' project in Clark's latest column for the BBC's Future website. Clark, first off, what is Ken Banks trying to build? Well, first of all, he's built uh, out a website. It's called Means of Exchange. That's the name of the project. That's the name of the website. And the goal is, as he moves forward, to build a series of apps that uh, communities and people around the world can kind of pick and choose from that will help people do things like bartering or time swapping or that sort of thing. So there's no currency that would be swapped under this plan at all? Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. He wants everything based uh, on the web, on mobile apps. He wants uh, technological tools that will help people do these sorts of things much easier. And by the way, we should say that that uh, you saw bartering and alternative currencies in action during one of your reporting trips to Greece recently. Yeah, I was in Volos, Greece, which is a town about 200 miles north of Athens, and, and they're using an alternative currency there, although it's not really a currency. There's, there's no actual script or notes exchanged or coins or anything like that. It's all done online through a, a database. Credits are sort of exchanged, and, and people kind of buy and sell or trade their time uh, that way. So in the case of this one woman uh, selling, I think, jam, right? Yeah, she was selling jam in a marketplace. She sold the jam. She got credits for selling the jam. She would turn around and buy vegetables. From somebody her, else. Exactly, to feed her family. So is that the, the model for this these apps that it's, Ken Banks is It's one of the models. What he wants is to, to create a, a number of different tools to help people do these. Uh, th- that would be one of them. But he is is very keen to say that he wants to develop sets of things that, that will allow people to do a number of different things. So, for example, he's really taken with the idea of making these things fun and engaging because his he, he told me, look, in the, the Greece example that I write about in the column, he says that that's a great example of people trying to get their local community involved in doing something different and making a difference and trying to get out of this economic crisis. But he said he doesn't think that these sorts of things are fun enough or engaging enough uh, so what he wants to do is uh, he's really taken with this idea of, of cash mobbing. Like flash mobs but like different? Like flash mobs but different. So flash mobs would see a bunch of people sort of uh, either through their mobile devices or online arranging to meet up and do a, a, a surprise aria in Copenhagen train station. <laughs> cash mobbing would be more like 
a group of people getting together and going to a local candy store maybe that's suffering economically and everybody spends $5 on a bag of candy. So And the, the word got out through the app. And the word got out through the app and through Facebook and Twitter and he you know brings social media into it and really get the word out. So he describes it as sort of uh, economic progress by stealth. What you tap into is this is this need he sees for communities to come together again and support local businesses. The idea is use the fun part to sort of drive the economics of it. So the apps themselves, though, and this has been done, hasn't it? I mean, it doesn't sound like it's that unique. Maybe other other apps aren't quite as fun. It, th- there are some out there, uh, definitely. I mean, think of a, a website like FreeCycle, which allows you to say, I've got a couch. I don't want it anymore. I don't even want to sell it, but somebody out there could certainly use it. So you put it up on FreeCycle, and hopefully somebody comes by and says, yes, I want it. And yeah, it was actually somebody in the newsroom uh, just came up and showed me an app that she uses on her phone called Yard Sale, which, you know, people are buying and selling things online. And you have a you have a process whereby you say, no, I don't want to give you 15 for that. I'll give you 10. And, of course, there are websites like Craigslist and, and eBay and things like this. But I think what Ken Banks is trying to do is, is really broaden this out a little bit, bring in things like Twitter and Facebook and, and really, you know, make, make it not just about the individual, but make it about a community. The world's Clark Boyd. Thanks a lot. And uh, you can read Clark's story about Ken Banks' Means of Exchange project on our website. That's theworld.org. Thanks again. You're welcome. In these tough economic times, it's not easy to ask your boss for a raise, especially if your boss happens to be a high-ranking member of a government trying to keep costs down. But earlier this week, a group of office cleaners came together to do just that, including this man. I'm just asking everybody like the cleaners, like the workers, to have the courage to fight, to ask the government to give us something back. That's Kofi Conan. Conan, not Annan. Kofi cleans the offices of British government officials. He works double shifts to make ends meet. On Wednesday, Conan and other cleaners asked for raises. That took guts, so much so that Conan, who's a singer, decided to write a little song called Courage Pays. The courage pay you, mon frère, le courage pay you. Conan and his fellow cleaners acted under the direction of a group called Citizens UK. It's pushing for what it calls a living wage of $12 an hour. That's three bucks above Britain's minimum wage. Some of Britain's biggest private employers have signed on to the idea, as has the mayor of London, but not Britain's national government. The minister in charge of wages and pensions has agreed to meet with the cleaners in September. Madagascar is known around the globe as the one place on Earth where lemurs live. Now, the small, fuzzy, bug-eyed primates definitely have the cute factor going for them. But Madagascar's lemurs are in deep trouble. Some species are down to just about a handful of animals. The main problem is the loss of habitat. Huge tracts of forest in the African island nation have been cut down for hardwood, and to facilitate mining. Scientists meeting in Madagascar say nine out of ten species are threatened more than first thought. Conservation International's president, Russ Mittermeier, is there. He says 23 lemur species are critically endangered, the highest level of threat. Critically endangered means they're on the verge of extinction. And and one of the most indicative species of this is this little animal called the northern sportive lemur, which is down to as far as we know, down to 17 individuals in the wild. Maybe we'll find a few more, but the habitat is extremely limited. So we really have to focus our attention on, on protecting these uh, last animals. So how did things get so bad so quickly? Well, I think a lot of it is due to this, uh, this political change uh, in uh, March of 2009, the coup that took place. Because 
At the end of 2008, I was on the verge of writing a paper saying Madagascar, an incipient success story. Following the coup, there was a, a breakdown of, of enforcement and controls. There was invasion of some of the most important protected areas in the country to extract rosewood and other valuable timbers, and an upsurge in uh, hunting of lemurs, tortoises, uh, just about anything that uh, people could hunt. Are other governments pitching in? Are they investing? Are they helping to support this depletion of the lemur species? Well, unfortunately, after the coup, many governments uh, suspended their support for conservation here. So it's really a, a rather depressing situation. And we're fighting a holding action right now, really focusing on working with local communities, demonstrating to them that conservation provides jobs and benefits. And we've been very successful in that. If the lemur is lost, uh, Russ, what else is lost? In other words, why are you focusing so much attention on this particular species? If you lose these animals, you lose the habitats in which they occur, you lose all the other species that occur with them, you lose the long-term potential for, for economic development based on ecotourism, and perhaps more important, you lose the critical ecosystem services that are provided by these forests and are absolutely essential for local people. The best example being water, fresh water. The odds sound like there's so much against at least certain species of lemur. Is there any hope for those particular species? It sounds like it's going to be pretty difficult, especially if they're out there in the wild. Well, there are many examples of endangered species that have come back from, literally from the brink. I mean, there are bird species that have come back from three, four, five individuals. Our own California condor came back from about 25 individuals. So if you bring the right expertise in, if you have the resources available, it's possible to pull just about any species back from the brink of, uh, of extinction. And there are some real success stories here. There's an animal called the greater bamboo lemur, which is a bamboo specialist. It's rather like a, a mini giant panda. And that one a few years ago was down to maybe at best a, a hundred to 200 individuals. And we really focused on this one now. And we've uh, found some new populations. We're protecting the ones that we knew of already. And that one is up to 600 now. So I think that uh, there's a real opportunity to save what is essentially the most unique and spectacular primate fauna in the world. All right. Thank you. Dr. Russ Mittermeier is president of Conservation International. He's also chair of the Primate Specialist Group for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is meeting in Madagascar now to address this problem of endangered and threatened lemurs. Thank you and good luck. Thank you. Lemurs in their natural habitat looking mighty adorable. See them at theworld.org. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. It's a big month for sports in Mongolia. Every year in mid-July, communities there celebrate the country's three manly sports, wrestling, horse racing, and archery. It's all part of an ancient tradition that's called Nadam. Lauren Knapp has been following the excitement in Ugtal in northern Mongolia. Inside a ramshackle stadium in the Mongolian town of Ugtal, around 40 kids prepare for a 14-mile horse race. They encourage their horses and themselves with a song. A few hundred people are participating in this county-level nadam. The events mainly take place in this small brick arena on the edge of town. Just before the race, the small jockeys gather on their horses to fortify themselves with irig, 
a mildly alcoholic drink made from mare's milk. They pour some on their horses' heads and hindquarters. The kids are led out to the starting line by a man carrying a Mongolian flag. Then they race out into the open steppe. The Nadab events date back to the 13th century, around the time of Genghis Khan. They were said to be a way to mark victorious campaigns and to train young warriors. According to Sanjmatov, a wrestling referee, the skills have been passed down from father to son for generations. After judging wrestling competitions for about 17 years, I've seen generations of wrestlers. They're wrestling just as their fathers, grandfathers, and ancestors did centuries ago. In recent years, as Mongolia has experienced unprecedented economic growth and urbanization, the popularity of the ancient Nadam games has been growing as well. People who've left their villages for the nation's capital, Ulaanbaatar, travel back to their hometowns for local celebrations. Munkbayer is a racehorse owner. During Nadam, people who were born here or whose families come from this region want to return. Even I came from Ulaanbaatar. I think everyone wants to come back. People who haven't met for a long time meet each other at Nadam because it only happens once a year. But things aren't entirely traditional, and there are trappings of modernity. Trucks selling Coca-Cola, ice cream bars, and plastic toys set up each morning outside of the stadium. Wrestling, the mainstay of Nadam, is now a professional sport. These days, fans can enjoy the festival on TV, and cameramen film the horse race from SUVs. And the roster of events has grown. Another traditional game has been added. Inside the stadium, just yards from where pairs of burly young men wrestle, four elders sit in a row playing a game called shagai. It involves small carved pieces of bone that are plucked from about five feet away at sheep ankle bones lined up on a platform. The object is to knock down as many of the bones as possible, along the lines of bowling. Spectators yell out uchai, a Mongolian form of hooray, as a way to encourage the players. Despite Mongolia's rapid modernization, there seems to be little chance that at least one of its traditions is going away anytime soon. One of the county's top archers is a woman, not uncommon in these games despite their supposed manly nature. She's optimistic about Nadam's future. Mongolians have never stopped the ancient traditional games. It is becoming even more popular. Horses are getting faster and there are more wrestlers and archers. Nadam is improving and growing, and now Shagai has been added. It's good, and I hope these sports continue to develop in Mongolia. Outside the stadium, the young horse racers whoop and holler as they reach the finish line after a 30-minute sprint. Ten-year-old Maralma takes home the glory, while her horse's owner receives a cash prize. For the world, I'm Laura Knapp, Uktal, Mongolia. Staying with sports now, this summer's Olympic Games are just around the corner, and we are a couple weeks away now from the opening ceremony in London. Alex Galifant is going to be in London, in fact. And Alex, as they say, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. What's up with the London weather, at least uh, in this lead-up to the Games? 
Well, I, I can't help but imagine that there are people sort of trying to do ceremonies to produce sunshine, but nothing is working. Uh, it won't stop raining. The forecast isn't good. But, Lisa, I have news. We are resourceful, us Brits. And at the moment, Londoners are retreating into nostalgia ahead of the London Games. So, Lisa, you remember the movie Chariots of Fire about British runners at the Paris Olympic Games of 1924? Well, that movie today has been re-released in the UK, and there's a stage adaptation of the film, too. A stage adaptation, as if the best picture of 1981 were not enough. There's a stage adaptation just to tap into the nostalgia factor. Yeah, so if you're in London and you don't want to watch Olympic sprinters in the pouring rain, then you can watch actors pretending to be Olympic sprinters running around a track built inside a nice warm theatre. Well, let's turn to the the one thing I imagine is really on the minds of a lot of people, aside from the rain, I guess, and I guess the joke there is that the Winter Olympics are just two weeks away now, not the Summer Olympics. Um, Security. Security is, is a big issue, and it has been. We've been hearing a lot about it, including the fact that yesterday the private security company hired to secure venues hasn't got enough trained staff. What's being done about that? This is a company called G4S, and it was contracted a few years ago now by the organizers of the London Games to provide about 10,000 people in security staff. The contract is worth $440 million. They've had a lot of time to figure it out. But according to the British government, it's only now, two weeks out, that G4S has said it won't have trained and screened enough people. So what do they do about that? Now they're bringing in the troops, uh, the British Armed Services. About 3,500 of them will now be deployed at venues during the Games. And that's in addition to some 13,000 who are always going to be part of London's security plan. Alex, there has been a bit of a brouhaha over here in America about the U.S. Olympic team uniforms. They were designed by an American, Ralph Lauren, but made in China. Uh, For some, this is an outrage. I have a feeling we've been here before with, with uniforms for Olympic teams in the past. My feeling is, you know, you want an interconnected global economy or don't you? You know, had the uniforms been made in the U.S., you know, maybe we'd have, we would have been hearing complaints about excessive costs. Then again, perhaps as a Brit, I ought not to wade into matters of perceived American patriotism. All emails to you, I think, Lisa. Uh, one other thing, Alex. Some commentators have taken issue with the berets that go with the U.S. uniforms as being a bit too European, as if there weren't enough controversy about the garb yeah. that uh, athletes will be wearing. To be honest, I'm a little surprised that Ralph Lauren could be so cruel to the athletes. <laughs> I wore a beret. I was about 13 years old. Oh, my. If we if we had a picture, Alex. Oh, the, there are pictures. I was obsessed with jazz from the 1950s. I, I played the trumpet and I, and I wore a beret. And Lisa, I know how deep that hat can sting. <laughs> so still a jazz fan now, many years later, but without the beret, sad to say. For public consumption, I'm without the beret. <laughs> All right. Thank you. The world's Alex Gallifin. Thanks again. Thank you, Lisa. Hollywood blockbusters debuting far from there. Our story coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullen. Still to come, can a solution to the Syrian crisis be found in Yemen? And later, why a film about two Dominican boys is upsetting Major League Baseball. When it came to the more sort of scandalous or salacious elements of the film, we stumbled into that. I mean, we didn't go looking for that stuff. 
GRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. A solution to the conflict in Syria seems as remote as ever today. There are reports of a new massacre in Hama province. The Syrian opposition says as many as 200 people were killed by government forces. As the U.S. and other powers look for a way to stop the violence, some have suggested the so-called Yemen scenario. In Yemen, President Ali Abdullah Saleh transferred power to his deputy following almost a year of unrest. The BBC's Natalia Antalava reports from Yemen on how that model has been working out. It was a suicide bomber. By the time I got to the scene in front of Sana Police Academy, the victims had been taken away, leaving behind pools of blood and piles of debris. Ten young cadets died in Wednesday's attack, second since May. Police and army have long been targets of al-Qaeda militants in Yemen's southern regions. But these attacks, right in the heart of the capital, signal a dangerous trend. In a cafe on the other side of Sana, Osama, a young activist, told me he was worried. These fundamentalists, if they're not controlled, and if this problem is not treated, you know, it's going to spread among the Yemeni society. And it's going to be a threat to the Yemeni people, it's going to be a threat to, to the region, and it's going to be a threat to the international community as a whole. The West knows that and is increasingly concerned about al-Qaeda's visible advances in Yemen. And yet politicians in Washington and London want to use the country as a model for solution in Syria. On the surface, the two are indeed similar. Like in Syria, protests in Yemen started peacefully, but grew violent as President Saleh refused to step down. The revolution turned into a battle of armed political forces. Osama and his friends admit that their demands for democracy got hijacked. Uh, unfortunately, things just did not go the way we planned it. It's either, you know, we, we, we had two bad choices, you know. It's either a civil war or to settle down for the best of the, best of the worst. Transfer of power from President Saleh to his deputy was, they say, the only way of stopping an all-out civil war. So do you think the Yemen scenario can work for Syria? No. No, not at all. No way. (laughs) Why are you laughing? I I always laugh whenever I'm sad. What I see in Syria now is a violent environment that's not going to allow them for for any sort of activism. It's sad. It's just too sad in Syria. I used to think that we are the most unfortunate in this whole um, mess that was supposed to be a spring. But in Yemen too, there is still plenty of trouble. A year and a half since Yemen's revolution first began, this changed square, the center of Sana'a, is still full of people and full of tents. In one of them, I find Ibrahim, who is improving what has been his home for more than a year now. He's here, he tells me, because his revolution isn't over. He wants justice, he says. He wants President Saleh, who still lives in Sana'a, to be prosecuted. 
Grievances with the new government are growing too. Life is harder than ever before. Many people can't afford to buy food. Electricity and water are scarce. Security has deteriorated. And increasingly, Yemen's political transition is looking more like a ceasefire than a solution. Well, we're mandated by the Security Council. You know, to... Jamal Benoir is a senior negotiator sent to Yemen by the UN to facilitate discussions between rival politicians. Here, his role in negotiating transfer of power eight months ago earned him the nickname of Godfather of the Yemen Solution. I asked him if he could see a similar deal in Syria. These are two different situations. In Yemen, there have been uh, a democratic experiment, well-established political parties. It, there is a lively civil society, which is different from the situation in Syria. Second, both sides in Yemen realize that they cannot win an all-out military confrontation. And, that and that's was, not the case in Syria? This is not the case in Syria, obviously, um, where the government believes that they can crash the uprising and turn the situation around. Unlike Western politicians, most people here dismiss the idea that Yemen's scenario could ever work in Syria. In fact, with the recent suicide attacks, food shortages and fears of another conflict, most are still waiting to see if the scenario will work for Yemen itself. That was the BBC's Natalia Antalava reporting from Yemen. Many of the biggest stars in baseball today are from the Dominican Republic. For boys there, baseball is seen as one of the few ways out of extreme poverty. For the best players, it's a way to riches. A new documentary opens today, tracking the rise of two Dominican boys trying to make it in baseball. The movie's called Pelotero, or Ball Player. The film started as a college project, but now it's gotten the attention of Major League Baseball, and MLB isn't very happy about it. The world's Jason Margolis has more. The film Pelotero begins with scenic shots of boys belting balls, not on lush baseball fields, but on dusty sandlots. 20% of professional baseball players in the United States come from the Dominican Republic. Over 100,000 young players, or peloteros, all have one dream, to sign a professional contract on July 2nd. This is the story of two peloteros. The two peloteros are 15 and 16 years old. Both are elite shortstops, and both are trying to get huge signing bonuses. They talk about buying homes for their moms and lifting their families out of poverty. The film chronicles their intense training. They devote nearly every waking hour to baseball. Trevor Martin co-directed the film. He says one of the boys they followed, Miguel Angel Sano, is considered a once-in-a-generation talent. Everybody expected that he was going to sign for the largest signing bonus in Dominican history. People were throwing around numbers of $5 million, $6 million. But in the film, it became clear that Sano may never see that kind of money. Allegations begin to swirl about the ages of the two main characters, that they're actually older than they claim. Trevor Martin says younger prospects are paid more. I mean, when you're 16, you can sign for millions of dollars. And when you're 18, you'll sign for maybe tens of thousands of dollars. So the difference is huge. North American teams want younger boys so they can train them earlier. As a result, lying about age is common in the Dominican. So Major League Baseball has created an office to investigate the age of top prospects, like the players in the film. For a player like Miguel Angel, high profile and likely to cost millions, 
the scrutiny is even more intense. And with rumors of fraud circulating, MLB orders Miguel Angel to undergo an extraordinary battery of tests. Such as bone scans and DNA tests. Investigators sift through old photographs of Miguel Angel along with school and medical records. Finally, his name is cleared, but the investigation dragged on for months, well past signing day. And this is where the film makes some serious allegations about Major League Baseball. Filmmaker Trevor Martin. There seems to be no oversight or accountability to any of the investigators who are going around investigating the kids. It became clear that some nebulous sort of forces were using the investigation as a way to manipulate and reduce the value of our character signing bonuses. In other words, the film alleges that Major League Baseball is deliberately dragging out investigations so teams can sign players for less money. The filmmakers say Major League Baseball declined to be interviewed. Martin says the film didn't turn out to be the college project they set out to make. And when it came to the more sort of scandalous or salacious elements of the film, we stumbled into that. I mean, we didn't go looking for that stuff. Stuff like this charge against Major League Baseball by a relative of one of the boys in the film. A mafia. This week, Major League Baseball Commissioner Bud Selig said a lot of things in the film Pelotero were inaccurate. MLB declined to be interviewed for this story, but spokesman Pat Courtney sent an email saying, quote, The film has inaccuracies and misrepresentations and does not reflect the current status of operations in the Dominican Republic. Courtney also said that Major League Baseball has taken a wide variety of measures to improve the game's operations. Major League Baseball signed a new collective bargaining agreement last fall designed to add more oversight for baseball recruitment in places like the Dominican. Arturo Mercano is an attorney originally from Venezuela who writes about the international business of baseball. He says MLB has proposed many changes in the Dominican, but most haven't been implemented. You can say that they have improved or at least they have tried to do something, but still the system is full of problems, corruption. Major League Baseball is still far away to deal with the problem in the proper way. Pelotero film director Trevor Martin says the criticisms by Major League Baseball of his film are unjustified. I mean, if you notice, they don't state what is inaccurate. I mean, it's just sort of a blanket generalization trying to discredit us. He says he stands by what's in the film. But it's also worth remembering that top Dominican players are still becoming very rich teenagers, some just not as rich as they had hoped. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. You can see a trailer for the documentary that's causing a stir in baseball. It's at theworld.org. Now on to a very different kind of film. Earlier this month, The Amazing Spider-Man premiered here in the United States. But the Hollywood blockbuster had already opened in 13 international markets, nine in Asia, four in Europe, and its global premiere was in Japan one month ago today, June 13th. The number of American movies opening abroad first is growing, in fact. Elvis Mitchell is a film critic and host of The Treatment at Station KCRW in Santa Monica. Elvis, it looks like Spider-Man is just as good at making money internationally now as he is at swinging from a web. It netted a lot of money overseas before it opened here. What's going on? 
Well, you know he's got to pay for those webs leases. So it's really expensive stuff to do. Um, but this has been happening quite a bit, maybe even in the last 20 years. And it's been happening a lot because one of the big issues overseas now is piracy so much in so many places. And, you know, even the Green Goblin isn't as tough a villain as the international pirates. So to circumvent that, lots of these big American movies have been opening overseas. But it's also important, too, now is the overseas markets are as important as America is. In fact, there are movies that will do well enough overseas to justify sequels. And they're counting on the Spider-Man grosses in, in Asia and in Europe to to do business. Although you would think that uh, it would be more of a selling point if it became a hit here in the United States first. I mean, how much, how much clout do these overseas markets have? They have quite a bit of clout now, even movies that you wouldn't think of as being international hits. And, and it helps when they can say it's already a hit because anything you can do to separate your movie from the pack, especially when you've got an investment of nearly a quarter billion dollars in a movie, you kind of want people to pay attention to it. By the way, who's doing the investing now? Is it international investors as well? It is. Money's coming from all over the place now, uh, around the world, literally, to keep these movies going because, again, there's such expensive things to do. And you can no longer count on the United States as being the primary guarantor of box office success anymore. Unfortunately, webs and fists are the international language of commerce. So is there a direct correlation, Elvis, then, between where funding for an American film, a Hollywood film, comes from and where that Hollywood film might debut? Oh, sure. That's, that's, a, that's a big thing. You know, you, first of all, Columbia, which is part of Sony, is an international corporation. They're headquartered in Japan. So they're definitely going to make a, a big play of it overseas in Asia because that's home for them. And the international financiers who partner on these things want to have these movies play at the same time, because it's it's a sign of status for them. Aside from kind of bragging rights to say, yes, I saw, uh, you know, I was among the first to see the amazing yes, Spider-Man. I was the first, the first to see Battleship in Poland, yes. In po- I, yes. That, that's going to go to my gravestone. Lisa. I like that. That's the, exactly your epitaph. <laughs> um, but but what about this, this uh, trend of having these blockbusters debut abroad? You know, what does it mean for American filmgoers other than the fact you know, darn, we missed out. We didn't get it first. Anything else? It creates a kind of excitement. People want to see something that's already sounds like a hit to them. And you find these movies that people will go to and they will walk out having a kind of a sense of obligation because everybody else has seen it. I should be a part of this, too. It becomes sort of bragging rights. You can see it almost as early as they saw it in the Philippines as a avowed comic book geek. You know, me and President Obama, I'm as happy for the success of Spider-Man as anybody. But it's I think, and uniquely American phenomenon, this kind of filmmaking, so that it's become an international concern now, is slightly baffling to me. All right, talking to us about uh, Spider-Man swinging internationally even before he swung here in America. Elvis (laughs) Mitchell, host of KCRW's The Treatment. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, Lisa. A rather eerie-sounding wind is your first clue for today's GeoQuiz. It was recorded just outside an array of sophisticated telescopes at the Paranal Observatory in northern Chile. The wind whips across the desert here, and the desert is what we want you to name. It stretches some 600 miles along Chile's Pacific coast. It's said to be the driest desert in the world. Some weather stations in this area have never received rain. This is a place where international astronomers come and go. Their research observatories here allow scientists to see into the distant reaches of the universe. Don't get mesmerized by gazing at the stars, though. Get cracking. Come up with the name of this South American desert.
Along with our GeoQuiz answer, our global hit coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you with help from WGBH, producer of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow. Four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Don't miss the series premiere of Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. A remote, high-altitude desert in Chile is the premium place to gaze up at the night sky. There's no urban light pollution to dim the view of stars and galaxies. The Atacama Desert is the answer to our geo-quiz today. It's home to a cluster of telescopes and observatories, including the Paranal Observatory. There are plans for another powerful telescope on this site, as Steve Bodson reports. So be careful where you go. Don't touch anything. You're not sure. George Howe is an astronomer, but today he's playing tour guide at the Paranal Observatory. This is a telescope complex run by the European Southern Observatory. We're atop a mountain in one of the four silos that holds the Very Large Telescope. It is among the world's most powerful optical telescopes, and Howe is taking precautions. See these tapes? Try not to walk across it because uh, there's, the place is alarmed. We're standing next to a machine the size of a small ship. It's one of four nearly identical telescopes on this mountaintop. The pulsing sound is a liquid nitrogen pump cooling the super-sensitive digital cameras that are used to take pictures of stars. In the center of this machine is a parabolic mirror that's 8 meters across, about 25 feet. It is extremely difficult to make a piece of glass that big without it being deformed. Pistons correct the mirror's shape every time it's moved. This telescope also has image correction that's a bit like the shake control on a digital camera. Stars seen through this telescope don't twinkle. That means this lens is as good as a space telescope, even though it's on the ground. It sends a signal to a wobbly, deformable mirror, which is two centimeters across, and that mirror corrects, compensates for that change, and that's done in you know, several hundred times a second. And so the light bouncing off that mirror would be perfect, or near perfect. Under the telescopes, mirrors are calibrated to the nanometer, allowing astronomers to combine the light from two or more telescopes into a single image. Massimo Tarenghi represents the European Southern Observatory in Chile. He's working on plans for something called the Extremely Large Telescope. That mirror is going to be the size of a baseball diamond. You'll be able to collect 100 million times more light than unaided human eyes will be, for the first time, able to look around a star. It means to see planets rotating around other stars. And this means we'll be able to see if there exists atmosphere on this planet. The observatory feels like a space colony. It has an underground hotel and dining hall. And here, next to the telescopes, a network of tunnels hums like a video game. One of the tunnels opens onto this control room, which looks a bit like an office with cubicles. The air smells of coffee. Late at night, every seat is taken as astronomers collect data as fast as they can. These telescopes have already seen evidence of a black hole at the center of the galaxy and have worked out the chemical composition of a planet in another solar system. In one corner of the room, an unused area has been set aside. From there, scientists will control the new, extremely large telescope, assuming they can cobble together about $1.2 billion over the next 10 years. 
For The World, this is Stephen Bodson. We've got pictures of those giant telescopes aimed at deep space. There's a slideshow at theworld.org. Got a shout-out now to our Earth-based geotexting game winners. They are today Wendy in Seattle, Seth in Phoenix, and Becky in Lakeland, Florida. Get set to play along next time. Just text GEOQUIZ, one word, GEOQUIZ to 69866. And finally today, a trip back to what's described as the glory days of Afghan music. That was in the 1960s and 70s, before the Taliban. Years later, the Taliban outlawed most instrumental music. Cassette tapes and instruments were routinely destroyed. Well, today, some of the stigma the Taliban placed on music remains, but musicians are active again, and the work of one pre-Taliban star is being appreciated again, as the world's Marco Werman tells us in today's global hit. We hear so much about how the Taliban squashed music, but it's also hard to recall what the Afghan music scene had been before that happened. I know, right? Doesn't sound like Afghanistan. Sounds like the whiskey a go-go in L.A., only fresher. This is Ahmad Zahir, Afghanistan's psychedelic folk master. Zahir died in 1979, but ask anyone in Kabul today about him, and it's like referring to Elvis. Or as one proud fan quipped in an online comment, Zahir is not the Afghan Elvis, Elvis is the American Ahmad Zahir. Now, Gerson Records, a small boutique label in Spain, has provided the sonic backstory for Ahmad Zahir. Gerson dug out the original master tapes of Zahir's hits from the 70s and have released a nine-track collection of his biggest. Leili Leili for example, rode a long wave of popularity in Kabul. Sadly, even back in the 1970s, this Afghan musician had run-ins with the authorities. Afghanistan's Marxist government in 1979 reportedly didn't see eye-to-eye with Zahir's political views. They said Zahir died in a car accident. Zahir's father, a doctor and former prime minister, said the cause of death was a bullet shot in his son's temple. Ahmad Zahir's story and music are stark reminders that as slow as progress may seem in Afghanistan right now, it's not as if the country is starting from zero. A pluralistic society with open minds and really cool music thrived there not so long ago. That's what many in Afghanistan today are trying to recapture. For The World, I'm Marco Werman. Kajaki, 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 Kaja
Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. The World is produced by Andrea Crossan with Amy Bracken, Alex Castillo, Joyce Hackle, Carol Hills, David LaValle, April Peavy, Adeline Sear, Tracy Tong, and Marcus Raitt. Our interns are Brendan Maddox, Rensenay, and Angela Sun. Ann Lopez is our director. Our editors are Jennifer Gorin and Aaron Schachter. William Troop is senior editor. Chris Wolf is news editor. Our managing editor is Jonathan Dyer. And the executive producer of The World is Andrew Sussman. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Join us at theworld.org when we're not on the radio. Hope you have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Annenberg Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.